Um, some of you might be looking up here and going, okay, who's this guy? Um, my name is Jonathan Locke. I am the Antioch campus pastor. Um, I am here uh, because Micah tested positive for COVID. And so Friday, I got that message, and then Saturday, I finally realized that I, I get to preach. And so um, I'm going to take his message and, and use it and, and, and go from there. So if there's something in here that you don't like, just go to Micah. No. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is so good to, to be here with you all this morning and to have the opportunity to open up God's word with you. And my prayer is that through the help of the Holy Spirit, we leave this place unified. Uh, unified as one body of believers to share the message of the gospel, the message of hope that we have. Now, if you're new to Blue Valley or a guest here this morning, what you might not know about us is that we like to preach whole books of, of the Bible, and so um, we start at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and preach all the way through to the end, and so when we come upon Scripture that uh, is difficult or hard to understand or maybe ruffles feathers, uh, we stick to God's Word, and, and we trust God's Word through it and all that He has for us so that we can understand the full counsel of God's Word. And so this morning, we're in Romans chapter 14, so if you've got a copy of the Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 14. And while y'all are doing that, uh, let me tell you a, a little bit about myself. Well, actually, before we even get there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in an argument uh, with a family member? Anybody? Okay, right. everybody. We've probably all had some type of disagreement, um, some type of quarrel with a family member. And a lot of times those arguments, when you kind of, you know, get to sleep on it and wake up the next morning, you realize that's kind of just an opinion that we are arguing about. My opinion versus your opinion. And so a little bit about me, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, Jamie's sister, my wife, uh, went to seminary down in Jackson, Mississippi. And she met her husband at seminary, and uh, he is from England. And Tony is his name, which I lovingly call him British Tony, and occasionally call him the Redcoat, all right? And so it's just a fun relationship that we have. But uh, the first time we met him was when Lindsay and Tony came up to Mariana, Arkansas, where I was a student pastor at a church, at First Baptist Church in Mariana. And I was mesmerized by Tony because he had the most delicious British accent, right? It was awesome. I just loved listening to him, just, just hearing what he had to say and the way he pronounced different things, like aluminum, right, which is aluminum, right, um, or tinfoil, whatever. But he had aluminum, or, you know, he asked for a flashlight, but he didn't ask for a flashlight, he asked for a torch, right? Um, he, he told me to go get something out of his boot, and I was like... I don't want to grab anything out of your boot, but that was the trunk of his car. So mesmerized by him and, and, and all of all the differences that we had. But the one thing that happened, though, this time when he came up, he brought a bottle of wine. And he also brought a bottle of rum. And I was, I was living in the parsonage. I was a Southern Baptist you know, student pastor, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose my job. Right? Plus, my salvation is at stake here because there's alcohol in my house. See, now, here's the thing. I grew up with alcohol. My, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian family. Um, and so there's alcohol all, all over, all the time. 
And I understood the dangers that alcohol uh, created for my family and, and the situations that it created that weren't healthy. And so I made like, you know, a pact to myself that I would never touch alcohol. And then as a young believer, listening to sermons that just said, no alcohol whatsoever, alcohol is sinful, I, I, I just kind of took that as that's what Christians were supposed to believe. And so my thoughts when Tony walked into the house was this red coat. What is he thinking? He's a sinner in need of a savior because of this alcohol. And so we began to debate, right? We began to debate with one another. Now, what I know now that I didn't know then was that we were debating the issue of personal choices on a matter of conscience, right? Now, what is a matter of conscience? It's an issue about which the Scripture's instructions are ambiguous or where Scriptures provide freedom within specific guidelines that not everyone might feel the freedom to do. Issues like alcohol consumption, where the teaching of Scripture is that there's freedom within specific guidelines. And then to show you how volatile matter of conscience are, some here are trying to keep your mouths from falling open, right? Because I said Scripture gives freedom with alcohol. And then some are trying to hold back eye rolls because I said there are specific guidelines. And if one of that is you, then great, my plan worked, right? That's what we're trying to do. So debate. Let's talk about this. Even Division, debate and division are matters on matters of conscience are not new. And in our passage from Romans today, we'll see Paul addressing a matter of conscience that was threatening to divide the church in Rome. It's a pretty easy text that we'll be walking through, so we'll walk through it pretty quickly. But I want to highlight three principles that we can leverage from it to help us navigate matters of conscience. And then... I'll apply them as it relates to alcohol. Now, do I have everybody's attention? <laughs> right? Here we go. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only Vegetables, it sounds awful. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him Stand. So the questions that we must answer from this section of Scripture is, who is the one who is weak in faith? What opinions are they fighting over? And then what's Paul commanding them to do? Now, the first two questions are related. The one who is weak in the faith is a reference to someone whose conscience is bound by what we would call kosher laws. 
So the opinion they're fighting over in the Roman church is whether it was a sin for Christians to not observe the kosher law or Jewish holidays. Now remember, the, Jew, the Roman church was made up of a mixture of Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. And the Jewish believers had grown up obeying the laws of the Old Testament regarding what food could be eaten. These laws were there to provide a way to uh, show a separation between the pagan culture and them. And so they had always been taught then that it was a sin, for instance, to eat pork. And that it was a sin, for instance, to not observe Yom Kippur, celebrate Yom Kippur. But the Gentiles had never been bound by these rules. And so they felt the freedom, complete freedom, to eat bacon, right? And to forget about Yom Kippur. And this caused friction within the church. Now, why does Paul call the believers whose conscience are still bound by the laws in the holidays weak? Because all of the laws and regulations of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. And so, Christians are not bound by the kosher laws or the holidays of the Jewish religion. So they're weak because their conscience was not being formed by the full teaching of Scripture. But those who continued to observe the kosher laws and the holidays, what were they doing? They were considering themselves super Christians because in their mind they were doing more than the Gentile brothers were doing. But Paul says the opposite is happening. You're not a super Christian. Why is that? Because they don't understand the true freedom they have in Christ because of their misunderstanding of what Christ accomplished on their behalf. So let's get a picture of this. What does this look like? What did it look like in the church in Rome? You have Gentile believers bringing those delicious pork little smokies wrapped in bacon or crescent rolls, whatever. You can eat like a million of them, to church potluck. You had the Gentile believers bringing these delicious little pork little smokies wrapped in crescent rolls to the church potluck, knowing that it would tick off the Jewish believers. And then the Jewish believers judging them for it. And then the Gentile believers mocking the Jewish believers in return for their judginess. So you can see all this conflict and this back and forth that's going on in the Roman church, in the church at Rome. So what's Paul's command? What's his instruction? And simply this, stop it. Stop it. He says something that no one except expected him to say. He says, God has accepted believers of both convictions into his family. And every believer will have to answer to God for their own conscience on the matter. So pork eaters, stop trying to force your opinion on those who won't eat it. And pork abstainers, quit judging those who love bacon. Who here loves bacon? Yeah, okay, awesome. I won't judge you if you don't. Maybe I will. I don't know. Read Romans 5 through 9, verses 5 through 9 with me. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul's focus here is more on the observance of the Jewish holidays, but the kosher law is still in view and he is expanding on the idea that he introduced in verse 4 that to judge someone regarding their convictions on a matter of Jewish observance is to act as a judge. So basically, to arrogantly assume that you have the right to tell the Lord's servant in an area of freedom what to do. Now the twist comes in verses 5 through 9 is that both those who abstain and those who don't are exercising their conscience and seeking to honor God in their decision. And they should, and they should consider the Lord in their decision. So what does this look like to consider the Lord in their decision? Pork eaters should have considered the Lord in their decision to eat a bacon sandwich. And pork abstainers should have made their decision on pleasing the Lord and not prop up their own self-righteousness. Ultimately, both sides should exercise their conscience in a way that glorifies God. Let's continue reading verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will have to stand before God and give an account for ourselves and our decisions before God. That's a pretty big deal. So Paul is saying, exercise your own conscience before God in areas of freedom and stop judging one another based on your personal decision. Now there are three principles from this verse. And they are these. In matters of conscience, seek unity. In matters of conscience, seek unity. Decisions in matters of conscience should never be a source of of division among believers. Second is matters of conscience. In matters of conscience, give glory. We should all be fully convinced in our minds that the Lord has led us to our decisions and that our actions honor Him completely. And then finally, in matters of conscience, exercise caution. Each of us must remember that we will all have to give an account to God for every decision and every action that we make. Which now leads us to the application of the principles in the decisions about alcohol consumption. So buckle up. 
Every person here this morning is somewhere on a continuum of four different viewpoints when it comes to alcohol. But there are only two biblical, two that have biblical support. One, on on one end, let's start on this continuum. On, On one end, we have people who generally throw caution to the wind when it comes to alcohol. You may not get stumbling drunk, but you do pretty regularly drink past the point of, safe, of safety. Say safety in driving a vehicle. Or past the point of discretion where you start talking irrationally. So scripture says repeatedly that drunkenness is a sign against God. But you willfully ignore what the Bible says about that. In other words, you have a practice of alcohol usage that is sinful because you stray outside the boundaries of biblical usage. See, Isaiah 5 verse 22 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Now on the other end of the spectrum are those who believe that any consumption of alcohol by anyone for any reason is sinful. And that was me when we lived in Arkansas. That alcohol itself is inherently sinful. Scripture says this, though, in Psalms 104.15, that wine is a sign of the Lord's blessing to gladden the heart of man. But those who view that all things alcohol are sinful willfully ignore that verse specifically. Basically, You have an attitude towards alcohol that is sinful because you push the Bible further than what it says. So those are two of our four possible stances on alcohol. Are sinful because they both disregard what Scripture says. But there are two that are not. One, of course, is consuming alcohol while anchored to the teaching of Scripture on the subject, which proceeded with thanksgiving and caution. See, that will look different for different people, though. It will go from those who drink uh, on special occasions or anniversaries or vacations or, certain, or drink with certain types of food, all the way to those who might have multiple drinks a week. And then the other biblical response is those who understand that Scripture allows freedom but who choose to abstain. And again, there's a continuum among those who abstain. First, there are those who abstain because alcohol, drinking alcohol is against the law for them. You're not 21 yet, and the law prohibits you to drink. And if you think that that's not a big deal to break the law in that, then go back and listen to two weeks ago's sermon on Romans 13 and, and hear what that has to say. Then there are those who abstain because they believe that the Lord has called them to fast from alcohol as a God-called sacrifice of devotion. You know not everyone is called to this, and you don't require others to be called to it. You also don't see yourself as more spiritual because you abstain, and you don't judge those who do not abstain but it's what you believe that God has called you to do. Then there are those who abstain out of wisdom. 
Because alcohol addiction has ruined your family. Or alcohol addiction runs in your family. You have past experiences of, the, of times with alcohol that you knew were not honoring the Lord. Maybe it damaged relationships in your past. In cases like these, you've determined that it's wise for you to not partake. You don't hold others to that standard. You don't judge others for not holding to that standard, but you choose to abstain out of wisdom. Now, the examples that I just mentioned are not examples born of a weak conscience, but this one is. There are those who abstain for a reason, something like the reason the Jewish believers still kept the kosher laws. You grew up in a church. You grew up in a church culture that preached absolute prohibition, that Jesus turned water into welches, which he didn't. Or that God only permitted people to drink wine because the water was bad for them to drink. Or that the alcohol content of the wine was lower then, which there might be some truth to that. But it was still alcohol and you could still get drunk. See, your conscience has been so formed by your tradition that even if you can come to the conclusion that the Bible permits alcohol usage, Within tight boundaries, you can't get past the feeling that you'd be sinning if you consumed or that others are sinning if they consume. So right now, this is what I want us to do. I want us to place ourselves in one of those categories. Someone who drinks in moderation along the spectrum that I described or someone who abstains along the spectrum I decided, that, that I described. Right, place yourself in that spectrum. Where, where are you at? Now let's go back to the principles that we talked about. Right? In matters of alcohol consumption, seek unity. If you drink in moderation, you should not mock those who don't have your freedom, freedom or to try to jam your convictions down the throat of those who abstain. You don't Order a drink for dinner when you're out with friends who abstain. You don't serve alcohol in your home when you have friends over who abstain. And if you abstain, you aren't to judge those who do have the freedom to drink or to hold yourself up as more holy than moderate drinkers. Especially since this passage would say it's possible that your opinion is less mature. See, you aren't to gossip about who you saw drinking at the restaurant or who you saw in the parking lot of the liquor store. We need to preserve unity in the body of Christ over a matter that is ultimately one of personal conviction. So seek unity. Next is to give glory. If you have the freedom of conscience to drink, you are to practice it to the glory of God. Which means that you are to never, ever at any point get near to the point of intoxication. See, I'll, I'll share with you what I'm going to share with my children when they come of age. You'll never be in trouble with one of anything. But after that, you're making a choice. Honor God with your choices. 
See, also, we have to give glory to God in every situation. Right? If, if Jesus is our all, we have to give glory to God for every situation that, that we're in. So there's a difference between having a drink at a restaurant or going to a bar. There's a difference between having a drink with friends or at a big wild party. See, what I'm saying is sometimes the environment isn't conducive to glorifying God. And that should impact your decision in those situations about drinking. Now, give glory when you abstain. If you abstain, you are to abstain to the glory of God. And that means you check any judgmental spirit that you might have towards those who don't abstain. It means that you understand that you abstain from a place of weakness, not of superiority. And so you don't hold yourself up self-righteously against those who don't abstain. So in the matter of alcohol, we seek unity, we give glory, and then finally we exercise caution. If you have the freedom of conscience to drink, don't forget about those who experience God's wrath in Romans chapter 1 which are the drunkards. It is a serious, serious thing for a believer in Christ to be drunk, ever. And to regularly break God's instructions on this is to call into question the authenticity of your salvation. If your conscience leads you to abstain, don't violate your conscience, ever. If you don't feel a freedom to drink, then don't. See, God gives us a conscience as an early warning system against sin. Kind of like uh, tornado sirens. So we should never violate our conscience. Even if the boundaries of our conscience aren't fully informed by Scripture. Me back in Mariana, Arkansas. Because it will teach us, if we violate our conscience, it will teach us to ignore our conscience on matters of obedience, where Scripture gives zero freedom. So now, in conclusion, let me tell you why it's important that we take this opportunity to apply this passage. See, I didn't just talk about vegetables and pork, but why we can apply this passage to the decision about alcohol. First, is that there is a growing acceptance of alcohol in church culture today, especially by our younger members. And it greatly concerned us, the pastors, the staff, the elders, that we, but that they, were receiving zero, zero biblical instruction on this important and potentially dangerous subject because of the customs associated with uh, with abstinence in our church tradition. So as leaders in the church, we have to be stewards of our people. And we weren't. Because we really didn't want to deal with the backlash that talking about this topic might bring up. But it was time that we addressed it. And now that the ice is broken, we'll continue to instruct when the text that we are preaching allows it. The second reason we brought this up is because there will be a day coming in Kansas 
where we get to vote on the legalization of recreational marijuana. And we know scripturally that cannot be the life of a Christian, of, of recreating with marijuana, because it ultimately leads to destruction. And so it gives us the opportunity to face something that we kind of hide and it allows us to talk about it. The bottom line is this. We should never be afraid of what Scripture says to us, even if it challenges long-held beliefs. Now, there will be more to say about the matters of conscience next week, and Micah will hopefully be back, and he can clean up the mess that I made and, and, and take care of it. But that's why this sermon is part one. So make sure you're here for part two uh, to hear another discussion on the matters of conscience. But let us go to the Lord.